This is Cassius Felicella, and you're listening to Homeroom, a podcast dedicated to everything startup-related. My guest today is Chris Benatti. Chris is the founder and president of Bedrock AI. Bedrock is a software that companies use to extract red flags from financial statements. Her company was part of the Summer 21 batch at YC, and she is also a Canadian entrepreneur. We feel very lucky to have her on the program today. Bedrock is a really interesting company to me because the company mission itself, we apply AI to SEC filings to extract red flags and predict corporate outcomes, I think is amazing, especially in the world of finance where there is a lot of ambiguity. So how did this project get started? Uh, Yeah, just one correction there. Our mission is actually corporate accountability through information transparency. Sorry. Um, But yes, that is is what we do. Um, So yeah, how did it get started? So uh, I had an unusual career path. I started out as a CPA. Um, I worked in in mining at KPMG and external audit. Um, So on the preparer side or or auditor side of, of financial filings. Um, Ended up transitioning into software development, um, did a master's degree, became a Python programming instructor, and worked for a few years as a data scientist in corporate governance advisory. Um, Because of the joint background, I ended up naturally focusing on computational approaches to corporate disclosure. Um, And I think something that a lot of people don't really realize Uh, outside of financial services, and sometimes not even when they are in financial services, is just how much text or or narrative information is being put out to the market um, by corporate entities. Most people think of the financial statements, but the vast majority of the information being prepared uh, by a corporate entity, by a public company, is narrative text, and there's a ton of it. And there's a ton of rules and regulations around it. um, And a lot of money goes into it. And uh, there's no real incentive for it to be presented well. And then it goes out into the marketplace. And then very few people actually read these documents or pay attention to them. Um, Mm, And because of that sort of, um, you know, bad things happen. Like bad actors get away with things. Capital doesn't get allocated to the right people, et cetera, et cetera. you know, securities, regulation, et cetera, had always been a big interest of mine, strangely, I know. Um, but so I was sitting in this position where I had this sort of unique skill set. I put out a few, you know, just what I thought were basic pieces about computational approaches to, to processing financial Could you talk text. about computational approaches? I, I myself am non-technical and I would love to, I think the audience as well would love to know more about that, and what it means. Yeah. So, I mean... Right now, the average annual report in the U.S. is longer than Shakespeare's Hamlet. Yes. Like, the, this is a ton of, of information. Um, and right now, there aren't really, there's not really a software approach to processing that information. If you mm-hmm. want to extract information from it, uh, you have to have a human go through it. Um, right. Or search. Um, so when I say computational approaches, I'm just talking about any way of getting a computer to extract and analyze the information or aid a human analyst. 
that's awesome. And when you started, was this something that you almost noticed immediately? It was kind of a flaw in the system, so to speak, or how did that journey kind of evolve over time? And when did you know this could be a venture that you could truly pursue and dedicate full time to? Yeah. So I was looking at the academic research in the space and surprised that there wasn't a ton going on. But because there's so much money in finance, Mm. I assumed that a lot of the problems that hadn't been addressed or solved in academia when it comes to computational approaches to processing text um, were being solved by institutions. Um, But some of my work got picked up more widely. I got published in the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance, which is Really widely oh, read amazing. and all of this stuff. That's yeah, awesome. um, but from that's a there, huge win. Yeah, that was yeah, it was awesome. But I, you know, from there, you know, I was brought in to you know a government agency to give them uh, an analytics workshop, and I started getting all of this attention from people who I was you know had originally assumed um, were were experts in this space. And instead, they were treating me as as the expert. And it was that sort of aha moment of this is exactly. a huge problem. There's a huge gap. Um, and there's just so little overlap between the ML community and the regulatory financial services community that this just hasn't happened yet. What was that aha moment? I, I think it was, was giving getting a call from a, a major government agency to tell them how to do it. <laughs> it it yeah. really seems like this was something that started as a side project and it was just how is no one doing this? Like how did you how did you build out how did you make the project a bit more robust and um what were some of the steps you took after that initial aha moment? Oh, easy answer, I didn't. I took zero oh. <laughs> steps to make it more robust. Um so I was working as a data scientist at the time um, so any code I wrote um, during that period um, could have, you know, uh, wouldn't necessarily have been owned by me. Um, so I convinced myself there was a, a big opportunity and then quit my job with zero funding, um, not one line of code written, um, no co-founder or employee. Um, so, you know, of course, before I took that move, I was, you know, talking to a lot of people in the industry about, you know, different related problems, et cetera, and, and had, was very confident, probably overconfident um, that it was a big problem and I could solve it and make a lot of money. Yeah, that, that's awesome, though. So <laughs> let, let's talk about, let's talk about that bootstrapping, because we often hear about startups coming up with this idea. Typically, it's SaaS-related. They go to investors almost within the first 12 months. But what was that experience like for you, starting from no employees, a single founder? What was the building of the team like? And what have you learned through that experience as well? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I feel like I got really lucky. Um, I applied for one grant. That'd be good to I, be lucky, though. And I got it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> COVID happened. Uh, I was trying to hire um, and having a horrible, horrible time. Um, but I had this incredible technical advisor, Suhas Pai, who is you know, brilliant and really helpful. 
um, was not able to hire, was not able to hire. COVID happened. And then my technical advisor sort of said, you know, hey, like a lot of my side projects have dried up. Um, I need to make a few bucks. You know, you can hire me for the next three months. And that was originally how I started working full time with Suhas. And now he's our CTO. So it went from this like very small relationship. Um, and then we ended up doing, you know, side by side research and working on just, you know, solving some of the outstanding problems in research for a full year together. Yeah. Uh, just did that amazing. process. Yeah. And, and what happened after meeting the co-founder was the YC experience almost immediately after that. Did you look for more grants? What was what was the next best step after that? Well, we wildly underestimated how challenging the research problem was and how hard it would be to solve from a technical perspective, um, which I think is a good thing and a bad thing. It was bad and then it really pushed mm-hmm. out the timeline to getting you know, a product that worked and an MVP. Uh, but the good part of it is it means that we have a much more defensible competitive position. Um, if the two of us had to spend a year making this work and, you know, or, and then, you know, it, it's going to take any other team a similar amount of time or, or so, so we assume, um, right. probably longer. Um, so that was, we, we, yeah, it wasn't, oh, like we make a, a magical research breakthrough and go on right. to YC. <laughs> Um, we applied to YC three times and we weren't really courting other investors. And we were thinking of ourselves very much more as a research team with a potential startup, um, aspirations. Um, but we weren't really keen on doing the sort of traditional, um, venture capital route. And that's all come about more recently. Yeah, that's really, I'd, I'd love how. A lot of actually, a lot of YC teams don't get in right away, and they encourage you to reapply. And I think that's amazing. Like the fact that, quite frankly, you never gave up. That's that's a skill. But what would you oh, say? Oh, we did give so? up the last time. Okay, <laughs> talk about that. Yeah, so they rejected us twice, um, and it takes time to apply. And this last batch, you know, we thought we were in a really good place. We, you know, we had some initial traction. Um, we thought, you know, like, Hey, if we keep making sales at this pace, um, we can make it work. We don't need YC and Mm -hmm. applying will be a huge distraction. So we didn't apply. Um, but then uh, one of the partners reached out and said, Hey, (laughs) would you consider applying? And we're like, this feels like a good sign. We should do that's badass. That's awesome. (laughs) I love that. What, what would you say are some big misconceptions about the finance industry. We were talking before the call about a lot of these prospectus documents, 10Ks, 10Qs, 13F filings, very few people read through. Mm -hmm. But more than that, what are some big things that people have presumptions about that are just flat out wrong? Yeah, I think there's a lot. Um, From my perspective, you know, I was around financial services, of course, from being a CPA, a lot of you know, my colleagues at KPMG went on to be equity analysts and all of that. Um, however, you know, as an accountant, my expectation of the, you know, so technical expertise of the people working at these famous hedge funds um, mm-hmm. 
is a lot higher. Um, and it was surprising to me. And this is not to say they're not competent. They have, you know, they're very skilled. Um, but a lot of really sophisticated investors don't necessarily know how to do in-depth forensic due diligence on a company's um, financials, which yes. I think would surprise a lot of people. Um, it's actually a very a somewhat small subset of equity analysts mm-hmm. who do actually have forensic accounting expertise. Or, or, yeah, or more in-depth accounting expertise. Oh, for sure. I mean, if the people at Pershing Square can't do it, what makes you think that people at a mutual fund, some random mutual fund can do it, right? I Like, is the mission almost to democratize this information on some level? Absolutely. Our, we, like, it's, um, we want to make this information accessible. It's literally impossible even for experienced human being to read through every single prospectus of a company they're interested in every single 10k 10q i'm just Mm. spouting out jargon at this point but um af's proxy circulars these are all really really long documents and they're all important to some extent but they're also filled with a lot of noise and nonsense yeah. And what was what was a paradigm shift that you experienced when operating Bedrock? You thought it was one way and it was a completely different way. And how did you, because startups naturally have to adapt over time because more of the problem will expose itself. Mm-hmm. What was one of those moments like? And I guess for younger people who are still in school like myself, what, what advice would you have for them um, in general when experiencing those things themselves? Interesting. Yeah. So I think our paradigm shift was very much related to that of, you know, hey, we know this information is really important. A lot of the people that we're trying to sell to might not necessarily even have the expertise to evaluate it without a lot more of our development. Um, Mm -hmm. So that was a big, oh shit moment. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, and it's, it's something where continuing um, to work on. But I think a big, very positive part of YC is they really encourage you to go after a specific niche, nail Mm -hmm. that smaller market, um, and just have faith that you're going to be able to build out and up from there. Uh, And that's exactly how we're looking at it. You know, hey, we're working on solving a problem that maybe a smaller part of the market recognizes as being really problematic right now. Um, people who have that forensic expertise and, you know, building out. Um, but as far as advice, you know, I don't know, just be ready to, to, for the slog, it, you know, that's every, every single startup is going to be a lot of just trial and error and, hurt yeah like he like there's this great paul graham line and he says the problems never get any easier they just get more sophisticated and i think that's very true Mm -hmm. what switching a bit on topics here what have been some of the biggest wins though for bedrock 
Yeah. Um, oh, I should probably have checked what names I'm allowed to say uh, before getting on this. No, we, but, we don't need to mention names, but yeah. So, I mean, you know, our first customer was one of the biggest, like bigger hedge funds out there, you know, I think top 50. Um, so that was really cool. Um, awesome. And the price point was, um, you know, in the range of a Bloomberg terminal for our very first customer. So that was you know, really, really exciting for us. That's amazing. And then the other, you know, another thing that was just really cool is we got an inbound from a really major household name. And we're currently in, in discussions with them for a partnership. Um, and, I, you know, I it was the kind of name where you see that come into your inbox and be like, is this spam? Is this real? <laughs> <laughs> and I, is this and email I, real, fake? Yeah, someone someone yeah. messing with me right now? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm still like, every time they keep responding to my emails, I keep going like, is this, is this really happening? Um, and I, you know, I called up, I called up my dad, you know, and just be like, guess who's emailing me right now? Oh, that's Uh, amazing. Yeah. And, and, you know, he's like, oh, I have shivers going up and down my spine. Like, I can't believe this is real. So, you know, those moments are really cool. (laughs) That's amazing. Okay. So I, I guess for, for a consumer that wants to learn more about Bedrock, how can they get involved? I mean, the price of a Bloomberg terminal might not be the most affordable for, you know, a standard retail investor, but, um, what can people do to learn more about this tool and this product? Yeah. So long-term, uh, you know, because our mission is corporate accountability through information transparency, we definitely want to build out retail tools in the future. At the moment, um, we do have a very limited um, just sort of for play um, website that is available um, for anyone to use for free. And it's, um, if you go to our website, which is bedrockai.com, there's, it, it will, you can click on the banner there that will take you there, mm-hmm. but it's, it's ledge.bedrock-ai.com. And what we do is we extract um, relevant information from 8Ks, which are reports that just give you a snippet of material information about relevant companies. The reason why it's nice to be able to keep track of that um, it's algorithmically curated is because a lot of this information uh, doesn't get picked up in, picked up in the news because of course financial journalists have limited time as well right. um, so if you are a retail investor just keeping a pulse on the companies uh, that you're uh, following um, because they are required to disclose everything they're doing right and wrong in excruciating details if you want that information it's there (laughs) you just have to do a bit of digging absolutely okay switching a bit here for people who want to know more about chris what are you passionate about that you don't get asked about a lot jeez i'm supposed to have passions beyond my business Absolutely. <laughs> are all consuming, but <laughs> when you take a Friday night off or a Sunday morning, yeah, off. um, yeah. So my major passion outside of my business, and I will say, just before I I leave the Bedrock AI, 
you know, the reason that I have stuck through this, even though it's been a full year in research to even, you know, make a major breakthrough in research and all of that is because these are all, it, this is like the confluence of all of the things I'm really passionate about. I, right. Know, so, so that said, I know you don't want to hear about that. Um, no, not so. <laughs> no, like this is your time just as much as it, as it is the podcast time. So, yeah. So yeah, really, I'm fascinated by white color crime and all of that jazz, securities, regulation, macroeconomics. Um, but on a more personal level, uh, my major, uh, passion outside of the business is endurance sport. Like Ironman and stuff like that? Um, that's a bit too long, but yes, that okay. <laughs> like, you know, like maybe just like a normal triathlon. Yeah. So I'm really into cross country skiing, running, kayaking, oh, cycling, anything. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. So what, for people who want to get more familiar with not only deep learning, artificial intelligence, because these are, again, very broad fields, but also um, with what you've learned over the years as a data scientist, what would you recommend? What, what should people read? What should people check out? Especially if they're just starting at the very beginning. Just starting at the very beginning. They want to get familiar. Um, it's a great question. Fast AI has some really cool free um, YouTube-based courses that I like. They have one on natural language processing, which is specifically AI applied to text, which I think is really cool. Um, Rachel Thomas, who is one of the founders of Fast AI, specializes in AI ethics. Um, mm. And there's some really interesting, just sort of like screw with your mind um, stuff that, that she has um, as well that's not as technical. Um, but there's, you know, there's just so many... There's so many boot camps and and online resources, and I'm not really sure where I'd tell someone to start anymore. That's cool, though. I okay on that topic about ethics and AI. We're going a bit off script here, but there's this great Jurassic Park line, and it says, "We were so preoccupied with whether we could that we didn't stop to think if we should." Where do you think some of the lines should be drawn with this technology, or where do you think regulation should step in? I mean, we're seeing some of this stuff unravel with Facebook right now. Um, quite frankly, there's always been some issues there, given their large, you know, how how much how many users they actually have. But what are your thoughts on that? You know, I don't have a strong opinion on regulation in AI. I think that's a tricky topic that I, you know, would be hesitant to give an opinion on. Uh, the one thing that I do feel quite strongly about, um, and I think this doesn't necessarily stop at ethics per se, um, but there's been sort of this long history of people pitching AI, um, people who don't really understand AI, pitching AI to yes. other people who don't understand AI. Um, and so it means that people who are making business decisions don't understand the limitations. Um, mm. It's very good and the, the limitations may or may not be ethics related, right? 
you know, like the fact that a language model um, always predicts that a man will be a banker and a woman will be a mother is is one problem. Um, but if you also don't know that the language model is really bad at understanding math, you know, like you need to know all of those things to be right, making the right business decisions. So I think this is more right. fundamental. Um, so in order to be like, you know, for businesses, for decision makers to be making good decisions about using AI in their products, there needs to be, you know, better education about how these how these models work and how they don't work because they're extraordinarily good at doing certain things and extraordinarily dumb in certain ways uh right. and knowing the distinction is the difference between success and failure it's night and day yeah, yeah absolutely i think that's awesome i think that's a great place to leave it thank you so much that was an amazing conversation i really appreciate thank it you. i really enjoyed it that's it I really want to thank Chris for coming on today to showcase this technology. I truly believe this is a revolutionary tool and is going to change how everyone in the world views finance in the future. I'm Cassius Velichel and this is Homeroom. Be sure to check us out on LinkedIn, YouTube, and Twitter at Homeroom Podcast. Thanks for listening.